Daniel chapter 8, from page 632. In the third year of the king Belteshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that I already had appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the, rebe the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary? and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep 
with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me from my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that represented the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the later part of the reign, when the rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and will take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Father, thank you for this time now that we have to sit and think about your word. Thank you that you've given it to us and you've um, revealed it and that that's for our good. Lord, we pray today that you would help us uh, to grow in our faith in you and in our love for you as we um, think about what it means to live with Jesus as our Lord. We pray for these things in his name. Amen. Well, we live in a pretty hard world, don't we? And from time to time, our lives can uh, get a bit of a shake-up when we experience things that we don't quite expect. We plot on, doing our best to survive, and every now and again, things hit us that cause us to slow down and stop and think for a while about who's in control of this world. And we know that it sure isn't us. A moment like that when we think about the fragility of life and how many things are really outside of our control uh, took place in the 31st of August 1997. Do you remember what you were doing then? Well, at that time, Princess Diana uh, had had a crash in Paris and later died in hospital. As uh, that news was announced throughout the world, many people had a spontaneous outpouring of grief. Can you remember what you were doing when you heard that news? I can remember what I was doing. I was having a, a father's father-in-law um, was having his birthday and we were having a few friends around and celebrating and uh, he was yeah, thinking something significant happened on his birthday. But yeah, it, was a, it was a shocking moment, especially if, um, if you're a child like me who grew up in the 1980s uh, witnessing your first royal wedding, watching it on TV and 
getting Mum's Women's Weekly magazine out to see the pretty wedding dress and things like that. Uh, and then to think that some years later I'd actually out-survive um, that poor princess. In a tribute to Diana, uh, Elton John tried to capture something of the fragility of her life. He wrote uh, in that song, Candle in the Wind, he changed the, the words a little bit. He said, And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind, never fading in the sunset when the rain set in, and your footsteps will always fall for you along England's greenest hills, your candles burned out long before, your legend never will. The image of the candle reminds us, doesn't it, that sometimes people burn brightly, but only for a short time. And at age 36, uh, Diana's candle was really snuffed out a lot sooner than most people would have expected. As the car went out of control, her life went out of control with it. And so we experience something of a paradox even within our own lives. On the one hand, we know that things aren't always going to stay the same. They're not always going to stay the same in this church. I might not always be at the front here, I can assure you I won't be. But there's also a shock that comes to us, even though we know at the top of our minds things won't always stay the same. Uh, when things hit the skids, we learn that we're frail and we aren't in control of this world and we're not in complete control of our own lives we sense something of a shock at those times. But one of the great lessons from the book of Daniel that we've been uh, encountering over the weeks we've been looking at it is to notice that there is somebody that's in control and that's God. That's a theme that crops up from the very start. We see that in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. See, even, even that decision to take God's king and put him in Nebuchadnezzar's hands was the Lord who delivered him there. In Daniel 2.21, we're told that God changes the times and the seasons. He sets up kings and opposes them. Even Nebuchadnezzar himself acknowledges the Most High Sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. We found out that Belshazzar got the writing on the wall that God would number his days and cut his kingdom short and give it to the Medes and the Persians. And finally, last week when Scott preached on Daniel chapter 7, we saw a courtroom scene where the court was seated and the books were opened and God was pictured as, as a judge over all of the kings and kingdoms of the world and all of history. The book of Daniel reminds us time and time and again that although some people are proud and arrogant when they get to their positions of power, the reality is that only God is truly in control. We see something of the truth of that played out in history too. In this uh, chapter of Daniel, chapter 8, Daniel is uh, picturing himself in a vision. He's down uh, in modern-day Iran. The capital at that time of olden-day Persia was Susa, and that's where Daniel sees himself. And in this vision, he sees some beasts. First, there's a, a great ram that has two long horns, and it's on the move. It's, this ram is going like the clappers. It's charging west and north and south and nothing can stop it. My dad was here today. He'd tell you he once saw a, a ram kill a goat or a sheep or something like that and that was a big moment in his childhood. But in this situation, there's nothing's going to stop this ram, let alone a sheep or anything else. He becomes great and does as he pleases. Fortunately for us, the good news is we're not left in the dark as to what this imagery refers to. 
Because in verse 20, we're told that the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. Oh, that's a relief. This one's uh, getting a little bit explained for us. It seems that the horns have got to do more with the, the king himself and the beast is more of the kingdom. You'll see that as we go. In any case, this vision seems to be played out in real history because Cyrus the Great was a Persian king who became extremely powerful. Uh, he came to the throne in 559 BC and his kingdom grew from where it was situated in the Persian Gulf, modern-day Iran, to northern Iran, uh, which was Media, and then west towards uh, what we know as modern-day Turkey, which was Lydia in those days, and then south down to Egypt, as far as Ethiopia. Cyrus had an enormous kingdom. He conquered so much land that by the time he came to take over Babylonia, the people uh, decided to defect. Many of the soldiers in the army decided to join his army because they knew what was coming next. And so when he took over Babylonia, he did it, it seems, without even a fight. Which I think sounds like a pretty smart thing to do. If somebody's already conquered the entire known east, uh, you probably want to you know, back down pretty quickly. Cyrus forged the largest empire that the world had ever seen. And his success wasn't just simply due to uh, great military might and strategy. Apparently he was the great liberator. That's how he liked to style himself, as the one who would uh, remove the unjust kings and then win over the people with certain favours. He also brought tribute to their local gods and tried to blend with them in their own sort of worldviews. In Daniel, we notice that he's actually still serving the king and the king's court uh, right up until the time of Cyrus's reign. And later in the Bible, we're, we're told in Isaiah chapter 45 that God uses Cyrus. He raises him up as the one who would take God's people back from exile in Babylon back over to the promised land to start rebuilding the temple. So God actually uses Cyrus and raises him up for the purpose of helping his people. But King Cyrus and the other kings of the Medes and the Persians who came after him because his candle also burned out, they were confronted with a problem. It's the problem of the goat. We pick this up in Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. I was thinking about this, as I was thinking about this rather, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in a great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and its place in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Well, according to verse 21, the goat is the king of Greece and the horn represents the first king. All the commentators that I've looked at all agree that they think this refers to Alexander the Great who came after the Persian Empire. Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, was king um, in 359 BC, 
And he was one to unite the Greeks after a Peloponnesian war where the Greeks city-states used to fight and uh, it's almost like a local derby in soccer. There's a pretty big rivalry going on there. But in the end, uh, Philip of Macedon seemed to unite them for a time and he passed down the throne to his son Alexander. Alexander had some advantages in his education. He was taught by the uh, philosopher Aristotle. If you were going to get a tutor, you could probably do... Um, worse than someone who had known just about everything there was to know in the whole world at that time. Uh, and he also developed this very high view of Greek civilization and had a missionary zeal to take uh, Greek civilization into the world. Having a father who was a good military strategist also came in handy for warfare. Philip had developed a technique for warfare called the phalanx, where uh, nine, if you picture 9,000 soldiers together, uh, shoved into squares with 16 soldiers on each side with uh, shields over the top of them and on the sides and 13-foot spears protruding out between the shields for the soldiers on the front line. Uh, that, those tank-like structures were what uh, Philip used with great effect in his, um, his military campaigns. And when Alexander reached the throne at the uh, tender age of 20, he... Um, 40,000 soldiers in this kind of formation over from um, Greece to modern-day Turkey, crossing what's called the Hellespont, uh, and he defeated Darius III's army, uh, and from there he kept going. He uh, headed south down into the Palestine region and came towards the king of Tyre, who put up a pretty good fight because the king of Tyre had a fortress which was actually situated in the Mediterranean Sea. But to reflect on the power and the strength of Alexander, he actually built a road out to that fortress and laid siege to it, and he conquered it. He didn't show that he was particularly civil, though, because he still sold 30,000 women and children into slavery and crucified 2,000 men. There's a lot more that could be said about um, Alexander and his clout. Uh, he... He used to have a few uh, psychological warfare techniques as well. One of them was that he had these huge bits, that, you know, a bit that goes into a horse's mouth. He used to leave these kinds of things lying around so that people would think he had these giant horses as part of his army. Uh, and that was one of his kind of mental sort of tactics. He, um, he took the empire right through to uh, northern India. But despite his great exploits, he got sick, possibly from malaria, and at age 32, he died. Well, what have we seen from these patterns of history? Well, the first thing we've noticed is that King Cyrus had an empire that grew great and it seemed irresistible, and yet it collapsed all within the space of three years. Secondly, we've learned that it only took Alexander ten years to carve out an empire that was greater than that even of the Persians. It was the first empire that would unite Europe to northern India and the ancient Near East. But at the peak of Alexander's power, as we see from that vision, this horn is broken off. Possibly a mosquito did the trick. And then his empire fell apart. Well, it's these kinds of patterns, though, that we, we shouldn't really all be altogether surprised about. 
Because the book of Daniel is really about that even though some people think they're powerful and in control, uh, the reality is that God is the one who changes the times and seasons. He's the one who sets up the kings and he deposes them. But the cash value for this really becomes a question about how we approach life. As we think about the control that we have over our own lives, it's good for for us to ask ourselves, are we too proud? Are we too arrogant as we think about the future? Certainly the Proverbs remind us that there is a way that this world is ordered that is predictable and we can make plans and preparations so that we can survive in a good way. But a very healthy question for us to grapple with is do we presume too much in our efforts to forward plan in our lives? Are we too a bit too um, arrogant in the way that we think we'll do this or that? We people who spend a fair bit of time waiting on God in prayer and seeking his will. The word from James, uh, if we do presume too much, is a good reminder to us. And I'll read that to you from James chapter 4. It says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So certainly as we think about the the reality of how limited our control on life really is, I mean, I don't think Diana would have thought that she was going to die in a car wreck like that. We've got to really approach life uh, with a lot more humility. Well, we're at point two in the outline. Um, there's a little bit less at the end, so yeah, your outline will be a bit imbalanced towards the end. If the ram represented the empire of the Medes and the Persians, and its horns perhaps the kings of those empires, and the goat, Greece, with its horn between its eyes, the first king, most likely Alexander the Great, what comes next? Well, in verse 8 we see that at the height of the power of the first king, the horn's broken, and four other horns grow up in its place. And we're told about those um, four other horns in verse 22. I'll read verse 22. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Now we know from history that Alexander's reign wasn't handed down to his son who was killed. Instead, several generals jousted for power in this vacuum and uh, they tried to basically kill a few of them off and then settle it down to about four. Uh, The Ptolemies were down in Egypt, the Seleucids were around Syria, Uh, Lysianus I think was over in Greece and there was another guy called Antigonus who had a kingdom for a while but it got knocked out by, I think, Seleucid. This uh, chap, General Seleucid, lived for a time and then after him within his reign, other Greek kings arose. One of those Greek kings was someone called Antiochus IV who Scott referred to last week when he preached on the little boastful horn in Daniel chapter 7. And 
Antiochus IV did a lot of damage to God's people. But let's just pick up from what Daniel chapter 8 says about, it seems, this this, uh, leader that comes. Daniel 8 verse 9 is where I'm coming. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, which probably represents Palestine. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. We'll go down to verse 23 now. In the later part of their reign, when the rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He'll become very strong, but not by his own power. He'll cause astounding devastation and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He'll cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure... He'll destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Antiochus IV became a ruler over Palestine in 174 BC, just around the time when the Roman Empire was on the ascendancy. He was from Greek ancestry and he had a goal of taking uh, his empire uh, further. He wanted to go down and... uh, take over the Egyptians. On his first campaign to Egypt, he was somewhat successful, but after a while, as happens in the ancient world, there was rebellions and people wanted to throw off the, the yoke of their, their vassal, um, their suzerain overlord. And so later on he went to go down and uh, give it to the Egyptians again and to enforce his rule over them. But at that time... Rome decided that he, they would limit his power. They didn't really want their kingdoms to get any bigger than they were. Uh, and so a Roman senate sent General Popillus Lanus to intercept Antiochus on his way down to Egypt. Apparently, Popillus informed Antiochus that he must withdraw from Egypt or face the displeasure of Rome. Antiochus answered that he would consider the general's request. But the general wasn't satisfied. And so he took a staff and drew a circle in the sand around King Antiochus and he said to the king, I don't know what accent they use, but you may consider as long as you like, but Rome requires your answer before you leave that circle. Those are fighting words, aren't they? Well, outrageous but helpless... Antiochus decided to settle on, uh, you know, sorting things out at home and taking control of his own empire. He knew he couldn't take the Romans on and uh, come out on top. So he decided that his solution to the problems in uh, basically Israel was to actually do away with the Jewish religion. And so in 167 BC, he sent troops into Jerusalem ordering them to transform the temple into a shrine to the god Zeus. The city walls that Nehemiah had um, re-established were demolished and the Greeks massacred the residents throughout Jerusalem and they burned down the people's houses and many public buildings. 
In the most holy place of the temple, uh, an idol was set up. And it's probably referred to as the abomination of desolation. And the Lord's altar was replaced with a pagan altar and the sacrifices were then made to Greek gods instead of to the living and true God. Laws were established which forbid people from uh, observing the Sabbath and also from circumcising their children. And there were great um, tortures and punishments for those who chose to flout those laws. Too horrific to mention, actually. And scrolls of the law were burned and anyone who had a copy of the law was killed. Officers were sent almost, uh, it seems, to all the cities of Judea and making the people, or compelling the people to sacrifice to the god of Zeus or to die. And so throughout this reign of terror, Antiochus IV thought that he could put an end to um, the Jewish problem, the Jewish religion once for all, uh, and bring in uh, Greek ways, you know, training for marathons and things, running in naked, this kind of business, um, bringing gymnasiums in, changing the food, all, all sorts of things. He was trying to bring Greek culture in and finish off Judaism. But what we've seen, as with the other kings uh, in the story so far, is that they have had their day and he also had his. In fact, he um, was on his way back from Persia when he fell ill and died as well. Possibly another mosquito, who knows. Either way, the trouble that the Jews experienced at the hands of Antiochus was overwhelming. And we know also this isn't the first time that they've uh, been ill-treated in human history. And so a question gets raised about this situation, this vision in verse 13. One of the holy ones asks another one, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? How long is it going to be till these things get sorted out? And of course, the inbuilt assumption here is that, well, even though this is dreadful, the fact is there's still an end in view. There still is a plan to finish up with this hostility. And there's a cryptic figure that's given, 2,300 evenings and mornings uh, will be the set period of time until it's sorted out. The perspective that we're given here in Daniel 8 reminds us that there is an end in view. And it's not just for the people of God in that generation, uh, for the Jews to realise that God's still in control of those who would be hostile. Even for Christians, people like us, uh, and those who suffer in parts of the world in a way that we don't in Australia, there still is the hope that God's in control over all history and all time. When I was in Indonesia, actually, I met a gentleman who recounted a few stories about how people had, um, yeah, that was a part of the church that he was from, uh, were taken into the jungle and shot unless they renounced Christ. That was interesting to think that I'd talk to someone who's experienced it that close to home, that um, people would be hostile to God's people. But again, we're still on the right side of the war, aren't we? If we hold on to the Lord all will be well. And that's part of the message here that even though things can be hard for a time, uh, we need to take the longer term view. Point three in my outline. What we get in this book of Daniel is uh, somewhat different to the type of literature that we would see in the newspaper, isn't it? We don't really tend to read these kinds of things. It's not the sort of stuff that we get brought to our attention on the TV. 
But as we're confronted with this vantage point from heaven to see a really big picture overview of the totality of reality underneath God's hand, it helps us to see our life in its proper perspective as well. From time to time when I teach scripture classes, the young people ask me questions about the supernatural and whether miracles are true and this kind of thing. And I keep reminding them that the Bible tells us that the world is not just simply matter. It's not just made of things that we can touch and see and gas and things like that. Uh, The Bible tells us that there is another dimension to our existence, that there is a God who cares for us, that he is in control of human history and that our lives do have meaning and purpose as they're bound up with a relationship with him that comes through the work of his son. But of course we live in a world where we are inundated with so many other things. Often people are very busy and they're holding up the world that we don't even get a chance to sit and think about uh, books like Daniel and God's perspective on the totality of reality. And so it's good for us to keep on meeting week by week around God's word and maintaining a right perspective on life. It's good for us to maintain our focus on Jesus who is the one who will return to judge and to know that we're safe in his hands. Even even though things might be tough now, we might be ostracised for being a Christian, we might feel that we're ridiculed or shamed or laughed at. Because we know what's going on at the end, that gives us hope to persevere even through difficult times that we might experience. We need to retain our focus on Jesus, the light of the world. Earlier I mentioned that Elton John sang a song called Candle in the Wind where Diana was referred to or compared to a candle who burned out long before her legend ever would. And in some ways it is nice to think of Diana in those terms as a type of light, but I can still think of better lights, brighter lights, that we should look to uh, in a world that is difficult and that there is strife and chaos. May we be people who continue to look to Jesus, to have our focus on him and let the light of his word guide us in the way that we live and the way that we think about ourselves as little people under a great big God who cares for us and who's in control of all things. May we be people who continue with our hope in the Lord even as we experience hardships and difficulties of all sorts, not just Christian persecution, but just the challenges of living in a fallen world. And may we be people who long for the fulfilment of God's kingdom where God is reigning as king in all his glory with Jesus as his Lord, as Lord and us as his people. May God help us to persevere and press on as his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word today which helps us to see again a reality from your point of view. Lord, we give you thanks that even though uh, we're certainly not in control of our lives in a complete way, you are. And we, we give you thanks that you've provided a way for us to come to be right with you, that it's through the work of Jesus that we can see clearly in history your love for us and that he paid for our sins. Father, we thank you that Jesus is risen, that he reigns at your right hand side, that he is Lord over every power and authority, that Jesus is Lord and we pray that you would help us to continue to live with our faith in him and to be engaged in his mission to seek and save the lost. Father, help us to let these things sink into our minds uh, and to live with you 
as our God and us as your people. And we pray you'd help us to do that together this week and uh, grow strong and be inspired to go from here loving you and serving you with all our heart. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.